3, 14 through 21. And uh, while you're turning there, I'm just going to pray for our time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, just thank you for today. Lord, thank you that your Word is living and active. Thank you that, God, you speak to us through your Word. And I pray, uh, God, that what you would say to your people, uh, Lord, that they would hear it, that you would empower them, that you would give them knowledge of your goodness and your love, Lord, and that you would help all of us attain to that fullness of your filling, Lord. And we just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, I'll read for you. Now, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, little disclaimer before I get started. Um, you heard me talking about steps and progression and, and order. Um, and... Perhaps you've heard sermons uh, in the past, uh, not here at King of Grace, but in other places, um, that maybe sound like, you know, five steps to a happy Christian life, you know, ten easy ways to, I don't know, pray a Christian life. <laughs> Didn't really think of what to say there. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, perhaps you've heard something, it, it, you know, there are these steps that you have to do, and, and it can almost sound a little gimmicky or like, you know, kind of like a self-help thing. Um, and oftentimes with those kinds of, of messages, you kind of have an external structure imposed on the passage. So I'm just going to look in the passage. I'm going to find like, okay, here's something that can be point one, step one, step two, step three. Um, yeah, and it just kind of forces meaning onto the passage. So I just want to let you know uh, that I am trying to be very intentional here in not doing that and in deriving this structure from the passage itself. So if you look up here, you'll notice that I bolded the word that each time it appears. And the reason why I did that is those are little logical hinges on which uh, the passage turns. And those logical hinges are essentially saying, you know, I'm praying for A so that B can happen so that C can happen, so that D can happen. Um, and if you just want to change the slide, I'll give you an example. So here is kind of the structure of the passage, just with a different sentence. Uh, I want to go to the store so that I can get food, so that I can eat, so that I am healthy. In this sentence, the end goal of everything that's going on is that last thing, so that I am healthy. But in order to arrive there, you have to go through the other steps, which are connected by so that. First, I have to go to the store, and I go to the store so that I can do the next thing, which is get food. And I get food 
So I can do the next thing that I can eat, and I'm eating for that end goal, that end purpose of being healthy. And so that is the structure of the passage we're going to look at today. And I just wanted to, to bring that up, um, not to overwhelm you with detail or anything, um, but I think it's important that we take the structure from Scripture. And I think it's also important uh, as we read our Bibles, when you see those words like so that, in order to, um, you know, in order that, those are really important because that's a logical connection. That's something leading to something else. That's motivation. That's purpose. And so those are just very important. So I just wanted to do that little disclaimer, um, little advertisement there, just so you know where we're going. Um, and hopefully that'll help get everything going. <laughs> now I can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> now uh, we can awkwardly transition to the next part of the sermon. <laughs> so here is the outline. Um, so first, we're going to tackle verses 14 through 15, and that's just going to form the background of the prayer. And so the first thing that Paul says here is, for this reason, I'm bowing my knees before the Father. And so here it's important to determine, what is this reason that Paul's saying? He's saying, for this reason. So in doing so, he's referring to something. And if we want to understand what's going on, we have to know what that something is. So just to get an example, when I was in high school, um, we had to give speeches in English class. And uh, my friend Devin uh, got up. It had been his first time speaking. Um, he just stood up. And the first thing he said was, so like I was saying, <laughs> OK, <laughs> were you whispering to yourself? And we're supposed to know that? <laughs> so obviously, it didn't make sense, because we had no idea what he was referring to. Um, so here we want to make sure we know what we're referring to. And so if we look at Ephesians, if we look at the previous chapters, um, we can see what it is that Paul is grounding this prayer on. And so if you go back to verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, for this reason. Uh, but then if you notice in your Bible, that's probably just a long little line right there. And then all of a sudden Paul starts talking about his ministry to the Gentiles so forth and so on, um, seemingly out of sync with what he's going to say. And in this instance, this is Paul, uh, you know, getting uh, intentionally caught up in the detail, in the grandeur of his ministry to the Gentiles. And so he kind of skips over what he's going to say for this reason um, and talks about that and then picks that up now here in Ephesians 3.14. And so if you know, what comes right before Paul talking about his ministry to the Gentiles isn't what Paul's talking about, then what he is talking about is everything that happened in chapter 2. He is looking intentionally back to chapter 2, and what we see in chapter 2 is Paul describing all the wonders of our salvation in Christ. He talks about our forgiveness of sins, the fact that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, that we're united as one people, both Jew and Gentile, and so this is the background for his prayer. Because of God's extravagant kindness to his people, Paul is now going to pray for the Ephesians that they would now know and experience and live that out to a greater degree than they have. And so that's the background forming that. 
And so Paul says he's bending his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And uh, this is just a, a statement. Uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to us in modern times, but in the ancient world, naming um, had a more uh, important uh, kind of meaning behind it. Um, to be named was to have a purpose or a role assigned to you. So think of some older English names. You know, a man named Bill Taylor was probably had an ancestor who was a tailor. That's where he got his name. That's where he his purpose was derived from that name. And so for Paul to say that uh, everyone, all family in heaven on earth derives its name from God is to say uh, that God is the one who is assigned purpose. God is the one who has this authority to do so. And so now Paul is appealing to God's tremendous authority, his ability to determine purpose and role um, in order to pray for the Ephesians. So that is what Paul is doing here. Now, we have the background sketched out, hopefully, um, but now we're going to make another transition. We're going to see what the prayer actually is. What is Paul aiming at? And so I'm going to go somewhat out of sync with the passage. Forgive me if there's a lot of connections and transitions that aren't readily apparent, um, but hopefully as we go on, it will make sense. So now uh, we're going to skip over uh, verses 16 and the first part of 19, and we're going to go to the end of verse 19. And why am I doing this? Uh, the reason is that this is Paul's ultimate destination with his prayer. This is what Paul is aiming at with everything else he's going to say in this passage. Uh, and so think of it if you uh, were driving around and you didn't have a destination in your GPS, you'd just get lost. You'd have no purpose. You'd have no aim. Uh, and so I want to make sure that we know what Paul's purpose, what his aim in his prayer is, before we explain how we're going to get there. Um, so that's what we're going to do, and then we're going to circle back. Does that sound good? Well, if it didn't, I can't do it any other way, so <laughs> you're stuck with it. Uh, so, Paul says here, uh, at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is, again, the end goal, the destination, the final purpose of his prayer. But what exactly does that mean, to be filled with all the fullness of God? Uh, does it mean that uh, we're going to be filled with God in some mystical way or like eating too much food, I'm going to be engorged with God? No, it doesn't mean anything like that. Um, but still, it's, uh, it's difficult to understand because that's not something we would say uh, as we talk commonly with ourselves. Uh, so what does being filled with God mean? So if we look at Ephesians 4.13, uh, Paul kind of sketches out some synonyms, some clarification of what he means by being filled with God. And so what he says here in verses 4.13, he's talking about the church speaking in love. And he says that they will do this until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so he associates this fullness with faith and knowledge of Christ, 
with maturity in Christ. And those things together help us understand what being filled with Christ, being filled with God means. Um, It means to become mature. It means to become like the one we are being filled with. Um, Think of a water balloon. Um, If I fill a balloon with water, what is that balloon mostly made of now? Water. It becomes like what it's being filled with. And so for us to be filled with God is to say that we become more and more like him. Uh, We become like the one we are being filled with. And so why is this now Paul's ultimate desire, that we be like God, that we be filled with him? Well, the reason for that is that is our purpose as human beings, just just it is. Um, When we were made uh, by God, we were made in his image and his likeness. We were made to be like God, to reflect his glory, to reflect his goodness, and to experience that amongst ourselves. Now, when sin came into the world, when we disobeyed the Lord, that image, that likeness was damaged. Um, We no longer resembled God, but we resembled what our hearts desired, the evil, sinful things um, within our hearts. And so Paul, in asking us to be filled with God, to be made like him, is asking for that reversal, asking for us to be brought back to our true and original purpose, that we would be like God, that we would reflect his goodness his holiness, his love, his wisdom. And so this is ultimately what Paul wants because it's ultimately what God wants for us. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to be like his good, gracious, glorious self. And so this is why Paul has this as his end goal, why Paul has this as the main purpose of his prayer. And so seeing now, having sketched out our destination, um, we can now see how are we going to get there? How do we arrive at this glorious being filled with God, being made like him? And so now we can circle back and look at the steps that Paul prays that lead into this. And so if we go to verse 16, Paul says, uh, after saying that he's praying, uh, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the first thing that needs to occur for us to arrive at this fullness is that we be empowered by God's Spirit. And to be empowered by God's Spirit is to have the correct fuel, the correct um, power uh, that we need to go on this path. Uh, Think of it uh, if I were to, you know, find that my car was empty. Uh, I can't go into my fridge, take out a gallon of milk, and pour it in my gas tank. That's not going to get my car to run. If anything, it's going to damage my car. Um, And in the same way, we as Christians need the correct fuel. We need the correct empowerment. Um, Oftentimes, uh, we can view the Christian life and arriving at maturity or fullness as uh, just the work of our will, the work of our effort. Um, Not that our effort is excluded, but ultimately, if I am trying by my own strength to arrive at maturity or fullness, I'm not going to arrive there. It's not the correct fuel. It's not the correct means by which God wants us to arrive at holiness. Um, And in fact, it will prevent us from arriving there because it is the wrong fuel. And so as the first step in arriving at this maturity, at this fullness, 
Uh, this is what Paul needs to happen. This is what he's praying God would give the Ephesians, is strength through his spirit, the correct fuel, the correct means to arrive at this end goal. And now this strengthening isn't going to lead immediately to this uh, maturity, this fullness, because there's a few more steps that Paul prays, and this directly leads into our next step. Verse 17, so that, and here's that transition, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So we need to be strengthened, we need to have spiritual empowerment, we need to have the correct fuel through the Spirit. And what this directly leads into is that Christ is going to dwell in our hearts through faith. And what does this mean for Christ to dwell with us? Um, It means for Christ to be present in our heart, present in our life. not just in a metaphorical way, but in a real substantial way, that Christ is with you. Uh, Where you go, Christ is with you. Uh, What you experience, Christ is with you in that, to support you, to help you, to make you like him. And so we need this as our next step in this progression. We need Christ to be with us. Uh, And we need it because, as we're going to see, having Christ with us grants us access, grants us Uh, more empowerment for the next steps that come along. Without having Christ in our hearts, we're not going to have that access. We're not going to have that empowerment. And so maybe as an illustration um, to kind of help us see that, uh, I recently started a new job at Southern New Hampshire University, and uh, I work in this big mill building that's been repurposed for the school. And the first thing that they gave me uh, on my first day was an ID card. And the ID card, of course, you know, says you know, he's an employee, so forth and so on. Um, but what I found out is that that ID card is necessary to enter any door, any part of the building, even if I'm already inside. Uh, so I found this out because I got trapped in the stairwell. Uh, <laughs> had to wait for someone to come and bail me out. <laughs> but... Uh, I say that because I needed to have that ID card with me. It granted me access. I had to have it present with me if I was going to continue and have my full experience of my workplace, to have a full experience of my job. And so in that same way, um, if we want to have this full experience of God, ultimately leading to this being filled with him, being made mature, We need Christ with us because he is the access to God the Father, the access to our Christian experience. He is the ID card um, of our Christian life. And so we need him to be with us. It's absolutely necessary. Um, And not only is it necessary, but it is going to be the only means uh, that we are going to be able to experience the next part of this progression. Um, And this is the part of the progression Paul spends the most time talking about. And so I, too, want to spend the most time diving in and delving uh, just to make sense of this. And so the end of verse 17 to the beginning of verse 19, this is what Paul says. Uh, Another transition. Um, So uh, that to know the love of Christ, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, 
So here we are. We have been uh, empowered by God's spirit. We have Christ dwelling with us. But there's one more thing in this progression that needs to happen before we can have that fullness of God, before we can be made like him, have that full experience of his goodness. And that is to know the love of Christ, to understand that Christ loves us. And so to discuss this, to, to understand this, to, to ground this, Paul uh, first tells the Ephesians that you are rooted and uh, established in love. Uh, before he tells them anything else, he wants to make sure that they're aware already their whole Christian experience has its foundation in God's love. And that is, uh, that is the foundation of Christian experience. That even though we were sinners, even though we were people who were apart from God, even though we were people who were enemies of God, God first loved us. Even though we were unlovable, God came in with his love. He still cared about us. He still loved us despite all of this. And he initiated this process to win us back to himself. And so Paul wants to make sure in a way that they understand this, that even in asking for, for God to give them this knowledge, even in asking for God to fill them, that they need to understand that they are grounded in love, that everything is, that is the foundation for this building, is the love of God, love of Christ for them. And so laying groundwork, uh, he prays that they would have strength to comprehend. Uh, and just to clarify these little subpoints in here, um, one, he wants them to comprehend, not by themselves as individuals, but he wants them to comprehend this love uh, together with all the saints. And so we are a very individualistic culture here in the United States. Um, oftentimes when we read scripture like this, like a letter, um, when it says you, we take it to mean, oh, you, me, Brendan, okay, it's talking to me, which it is. It very much is applicable to me as an individual. Uh, but more often than not, especially in these letters, Paul is speaking to a group of people. He's speaking to a church, a gathered group of Christians. And he wants to make sure that they know uh, this experience of God's fullness, um, this knowledge of God's love, Christ's love for them. It's not something they can comprehend just as individuals. Um, you know, I like to think of it, maybe a weird example, but... Uh, <laughs> To launch a nuclear bomb, <laughs> at least from what I understand in the movies, uh, <laughs> you need more than one key to actually like initiate the launch. Uh, you know, there you need two keys, and they're too far apart for one man to unlock both of them. Uh, and in a similar way, uh, understanding God's love, you need more than one person. You need more than just yourself to understand it. Um, God's love is so massive and expansive. It's much more than I could understand just as an individual. You know, I need Carter. I need Mattia. I need my wife. Uh, I need Toby. Uh, we all need each other in order to understand that. And so Paul wants to make sure, now that they know their experience is grounded in love, that they know that this comprehension of Christ's love is only going to come in community. It's only going to come as a result of being with other believers. And so having laid this groundwork now, uh, Paul gets to the meat of what he's going to say. 
He wants them to understand this breadth and length and height and depth. And what this is referring to is the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is the, the penultimate, this is the, the last step before we arrive at fullness. And Paul wants us to know that this is something that only God can do for us. Um, knowing that we're loved, knowing that's the foundation, knowing that we need each other to understand this love. Uh, Paul just waxes eloquently about the dimensions of this love. It's, it's height, it's depth, it's width, it's length. Uh, that it is so expansive, that it is so great and immense, uh, to the point where, in somewhat of a, a weird way, he's saying, I want you to know this love that is above knowledge. I want you to know something that you can't know. That's essentially what Paul is saying. Um, and the reason why he's saying this is because the love of Christ, the love of God, is so great for us. It goes above what we can mentally comprehend. It goes above what we can imagine. Um, it's just so incredible and great. And this is what Paul wants them to know. And I think what last piece of, of just understanding that, that, that we have to know is Paul isn't just saying, you know, I want you to know that Christ loves you such that I could just say, yeah, Jesus loves you, and that's all you need to know. Like, I could just write that, check that off the box. Like, okay, Jesus loves me, you know, dry cleaning, got to be picked up. Nah, nah, nah. You know, that's not what he's saying. Because if Paul just needed them to know that Christ loved them, just in a mere intellectual way, he, he already has said that. He already said, like, yeah, you're rooted and grounded in love. Jesus loves you. Okay, let's move on. That's not what he means. Um, he really means he, he wants them to experience that. He wants it to be more than just an intellectual, mental knowledge. He wants them to actually experience that love, to know it in their heart of hearts, that Christ loves them, that Christ died for them. And that makes sense because think of any relationship you're in. Um, you know, I'm going to use my wife as an example, but, uh, you know, I could tell my wife that I love her, and, and that's all well and good. Um, but I imagine for her, she wants to know deeply that I love her. She wants to experience that. She wants there to be that evidence that I care about her. Not just me saying it, not me just telling her uh, that I love her. And this is what Paul wants for the Ephesians in relation to love of Christ. Not just that they know it, you know, I can say to myself, you know, Jesus loves me, but to really know that, to really experience and feel that. Um, to really have that in the core of their being, that they are loved by Christ, they are loved by God. And so you may be thinking, you know, just looking at this, this last step, okay, why is, why is that the last thing you need before you arrive at this fullness? Why is that the, the last step, the, the most important step before you arrive there? You know, just to know that Christ loves me. And I think that, that we can think that, that we can perceive it that way, because we don't live in a culture um, where love is just freely given, irrespective of anything else. Um, you know, we live in, a, in a, a, a world where you have to earn and merit uh, something in order to be loved. Uh, you have earning, you have accomplishment, and then you have love and affection. That's kind of the way the world works. You know, I'm not going to go into my office and, you know, someone's going to be like, you're the best employee ever. And I'll be like, I just walked in. This is my first day, but thank you. 
you know, <laughs> I need to earn that. I need to somehow accomplish something to receive that. But even though that's the way our world works, that's absolutely not the case with God. God is the opposite of that. God's love comes before we do anything, and that's something that Paul wants the Ephesians to know. He needs them to know that God loves them before they do anything, because the doing comes from the knowing. Um, The love comes first, and that's what motivates this maturity. That's what allows God to fill us, not the other way around. Um, You know, uh, Mike Lilly, who uh, is one of our pastors, and he he planted a church. Um, I remember I was just having a rough time, um, and he told me, you know, Brendan, you know, you could fail out of school, you could, you know, crash your car, all this. God doesn't love you any less because of that. And you could, you know, I don't know, get straight A's or, or, you know, do all this, you know, be a humanitarian, you know, be the best person ever, and God's not going to love you more. Um, God's love is not based on these conditions, these things that we perceive to be important. Uh, Not that they are not important, but that's not what's motivating God's love. God's not looking at me and saying, okay, you're a pretty good guy, so I'm going to love you, or saying to me, you're a pretty bad guy, I'm not going to love you. That is the opposite of, of Christianity. That's the opposite of the gospel. God loves his people first and without any condition, without any, anything on our part. Um, and that love is seen in the cross that we uh, as sinners, we as people who are deserving uh, not of love, but to be God's enemies, to be hated by God, to, to be punished, Christ came and died for us. Christ came and took that upon himself. And that's the basis of our Christian life. That's why this is the most important step before being filled to the fullness of God. Um, We have to know that God loves us before we're able to live a mature Christian life because that's the correct order of the Christian life. Um, I love this quote. It's by this man named Marius Victorinus. Uh, He was a Latin guy in the 4th century. Um, But I think this quote just expresses so perfectly why this is this last step, why this is so important. And he says, The one who knows the love that passes all understanding will better express the full measure of love for Christ. Paul prays that that they may know the love of Christ rather than do something. Doing comes from this knowing. Um, We are accepted, we are loved, we are cared for, irrespective of what we do. And it's because of that that we want to serve God. It's because of that that we want to uh, be like God. It's because God just loves us. God cares for us. He died for us. And that is what motivates our Christian life. We're not earning to, ex- to achieve God's love. We already have God's love. And that gives us this freedom now to live in maturity, to seek out this fullness of God, to live for God because God has died for us. And so I hope, uh, even as I'm saying this, even as I'm, I'm, I'm speaking these words, that God uh, would give you just that deep, rich experience of his love, that you would know in the core of your being that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he died for you, more than just mental assent, but just that deep-rooted experience and knowledge that nothing can take from you. 
And so as we, we end this, as we, we reach the conclusion, um, Paul has one last thing to say, and this is his, his praise to God. Uh, this is his assurance that this prayer is going to be answered. And so Paul says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And so in relation to this passage, in, in relation to this goal of arriving at this fullness of God, arriving at this maturity, um, Paul has this little section of praise. Uh, and he says what he says because he knows that God is able to accomplish this prayer on the Ephesians' behalf, and he's still able to do that today. Um, the God who's able to do abundantly more than we can think or imagine can certainly help us to understand a love that's not understandable. Um, a God who's able to do above and beyond what we can imagine is certainly able to strengthen us by his spirit uh, to give us this empowerment for the Christian of life. A God who's able to do above and beyond what we can imagine is certainly able to cause his son Christ to dwell in our hearts, giving us that access to that knowledge, access to the Father. Um, and again, God, who is able to do above and beyond what we can think or imagine, certainly can help us to understand this love that surpasses knowledge. And finally, God, who could do these things, is certainly able to fill us with himself, to make us mature and holy, to help us experience his goodness and his graciousness. And so with Paul, in his final sentence, that's how I would like to, to leave this, is to this God who's able to do these things, this God who loves us, who died for us, who wants us to be like him, to that God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The band would like to come up.